you guys can turn to John chapter 14. We're going to continue looking at Jesus' teachings in the last week of his life, so leading up to Easter. John 14 is where we'll start today. Uh, Most of you are probably aware of this. The next Marvel Avengers movie comes out in a few weeks. Yeah, you are aware. So apparently, it's projected to make over like a billion dollars in opening weekend. Pre-sale tickets went on this week, and from what I was reading, it actually has broken every record out there. Huge thing. Everybody wants to see this movie. And so it got me thinking, what is it about superhero movies like this that really get us excited? Why do we love them? I don't think it's just because they're exciting to watch. There's plenty of movies out there with exciting computer graphics in them. There's something more. It's something deeper. And it was interesting to think about all the, you know, there's lots of superheroes in this particular movie. It's interesting to think about how many of them, percentage-wise, are just normal human beings like you and me who had something really powerful enter their life. Like, it's the same origin story over and over again. So, Tony Stark, he becomes Iron Man with the infusion of like this reactor in his chest. Steve Rogers becomes Captain America when he gets a a serum injected into him. T'Challa becomes the Black Panther when he sips this this drink with herbs in it. Over and over again, like all the great superhero stories, whether you're talking about Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Captain Marvel, over and over, it's the same story. It's normal human beings like you and me who are transformed into something super through some power coming into their lives. I think the reason that we love these stories is because we can see ourselves in their story. We can imagine that it's us because we're just normal human beings who want to live extraordinary lives. We want to do big things. We want our lives to count, but we feel our limitations. We sense our weaknesses. We can, we can see how broken we are. And so we dream about some kind of amazing power entering our lives and transforming us into some heroic person. Well, interestingly, Jesus in our passage this morning promises you exactly that. Exactly that in John 14. So look with me in John 14. This is, in a sense, our superhero origin story. If you look at John 14, starting in verse 16, Jesus is speaking. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it does not Because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is actually the first time of many on Jesus' last night with his disciples where he talks about the Holy Spirit. He, he repeats it often so you can tell this is really important to him. He, he wants his disciples to understand Jesus is about to leave. He's about to die and then rise from the dead and then ascend to heaven. After three years of spending every day with them, he's going back to heaven. But he wants them to understand he will not leave them alone. He will not leave them as orphans. He will send his spirit to live in them, to abide with them forever. So this is Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come to live inside his people. Now, for most of you, that is not a new thing to hear because you've been coming to church for a while, and we frequently talk about how the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That's not news to us, but it was news to the disciples. 
That was a totally new thing because that's not how God operated in the Old Testament. You may remember when I walked you guys through the whole story of the Bible earlier this semester, we talked about how in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not come to live inside God's people. That's not where God's presence was on earth. Where did God's presence live on earth in the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels? In the temple. In Jerusalem, in a little room called the Holy of Holies. And so in the Old Testament or even in the Gospels before Jesus died, if you asked a Jewish person, where must you go to be near to God? They would give you a map. You you need to travel to Jerusalem and then you need to walk to the temple and there you will be near God because God's presence was in one place on earth. And so being near God was, was something that required a great deal of travel, a great deal of work. But in the Old Testament, God promised that all that would change soon. God promised that he would do something new, that he would give his people a new covenant, a better covenant that would give them the gift of the Holy Spirit to live inside of them. Instead of God dwelling in a building, God would dwell in our hearts, in his people. That is the promise that Jesus is making in John 14. He's saying this new covenant promise of God living in you. You were promised it hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament. It is about to come true. It's almost here, but it wasn't here yet. So John 14 is just a promise. It's just future tense. You may have noticed that Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give the spirit to you. Look at John 16, a couple chapters later, verse seven. Jesus says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying, it's actually better for me to go to heaven. The reason is because once I'm gone, then the spirit can come. Why? Why did they have to wait for Jesus to leave before the spirit could come? Well, because until Jesus left, they were still under the Mosaic covenant. The old covenant. The old covenant didn't give them the spirit. The old covenant didn't give them that gift. But the old covenant couldn't be set aside until Jesus died and rose from the dead. That had to come first. And so on the cross, Jesus died to set aside the old way. The old covenant that told you what to do but didn't give you the the desire to do it. He died to set all of that aside and then he rose and ascended to heaven so that we now could have this new and better gift. The Holy Spirit himself. And so Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come. When does the Holy Spirit come? Well, Acts chapter 2, actually, we know exactly when the Holy Spirit came. Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost, that's about 50 days after Jesus died on the cross, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the beginning of the new era. This is when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. From this moment on, every person who is trusted in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside of them in the same way. Now, 
He doesn't typically come as fire that we can see anymore. That's not really his style. He did that at the very beginning so the disciples could see the new day has dawned. But after that beginning, he just comes into our lives in an invisible way, but he's still there. In the same way that he came into the lives of the disciples, he comes into your life the moment you trust in Jesus. Now, you may have noticed, I want to make sure you're clear on this. I said, he comes into your life not it comes into your life. That's important to clarify. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. So when we think about what's going on in Acts 2, this is not like a Star Wars moment where you have a bunch of young Jedi getting in touch with this force that permeates all living things. No. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He's a person in every way, just like Jesus is, just like the Father is. How do you know that? Well, many times in Scripture, the Holy Spirit interacts with humans in a way that's only possible for a person. So Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to a force. You only lie to a person. Later in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit makes plans and he directs the church and he has desires and a will. A force doesn't have that. Only a person does. So the Holy Spirit is a person living inside of you. Why does that matter? Well, you might recall back in John 14, verse 8, we we read where Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. It's interesting if you're reading the news and kind of reading what's happening in our society. There has been an incredible uptick in feelings of deep loneliness here in America. Uh, Numbers, the rates have about doubled in the last decade. Just an incredible increase in the incidence of people feeling deeply lonely, deeply disconnected. Well, according to, to what Jesus is saying, if you've trusted in him, you are literally never alone. There is another person inside of you, not a force Not a power, but an actual person. God the Spirit is living in you at all times. You will never be alone. God himself lives in you. He goes with you wherever you go. So that doesn't mean you're not going to feel lonely at times. That's just human to feel lonely at times. But when you feel lonely, you can now remind yourself, regardless of the feeling, I am actually not alone. The truth is God is with me and in me right now. The third person of the Trinity is with you at all times. So you are never alone. God promised in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And he has kept that promise through the Holy Spirit living in you. He is with you at all times. So the Holy Spirit is in you. So if you go back to kind of the the Avengers idea, just like Tony Stark or Steve Rogers or Carol Danvers or Peter Parker, there there is this source of supernatural power that has come to live inside you. you. You are no longer merely human. You are now filled with the Holy Spirit himself. This infinite, almighty, third member of the Trinity lives in you to enable you to have a heroic life, but, but what is he doing in there? Even though I have the Holy Spirit in me, I, I can't fly. I can't shoot lightning from my fingertips. I, I can't do any of that stuff. That's not really how the Holy Spirit works, not in obvious ways like in the movies. And yet the Bible is clear and Jesus is clear that the Holy Spirit is doing truly supernatural stuff in you right now. So what is it? What is he doing in you now, well, Jesus in this passage tells us at least four things that the Holy Spirit does 
in us, whether we can feel it, whether we can sense it or not, this is really the stuff he's doing in us. And so let me walk you through some of the things that Jesus tells us the Spirit is doing in our lives. Number one, the Spirit is convicting unbelievers. And you can see that in chapter 16. So look again, John chapter 16, and let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, and, and he, that is the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What Jesus is saying is that the Spirit is at work in our lives even before we trust in Jesus. He's already there. He's already doing stuff. In particular, he's convicting. He's, he's opening our eyes to see and understand things like sin and, and the righteousness of God and the judgment that's coming. In other words, what he's helping us to see is how much we need a Savior. You're never going to trust in Jesus as your Savior if you don't think you need to be saved. If you think you're really all right, if you think you can earn your way to God, then you're never going to turn to Jesus. And so the Spirit is at work supernaturally softening our hearts and opening our eyes so that we can comprehend how desperately we need a Savior in our lives. The Spirit is preparing us to trust in Jesus. Now, how exactly is he doing that? And is he doing it for all people in the same way? And how do you fit that together with our free will? I don't have answers to any of that. God does not feel compelled to explain to us the mechanics of what the Spirit is doing. What Jesus wants us to know is that God loves us so much that while while we were still his enemies already, he was working in us for good. He was already working in our lives so that we would see and understand how good Jesus is. So the Holy Spirit began to work in your life so that you would be drawn to a place where you would say yes to Jesus. If at some point in your life you have said yes to Jesus, yes, I I believe you died for me and rose from the dead so I could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift, it was the Spirit helping you to get to that place. Once you said yes to Jesus... The Spirit began a second work in you. The Spirit began to regenerate you. So the second thing that the Spirit does, he regenerates believers. For this one, we're going to have to go back earlier in John. So you can leave your finger here in in 16, but turn back to chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, who's a pretty good guy. Not, not like some of the other Pharisees. Nicodemus really wanted to learn. He really wanted to understand truth. And so he came to Jesus with some questions. And Jesus had some answers. Look with me. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is a bit of an odd passage. (laughs) Kind of hard to understand this passage if you didn't have all the rest of the New Testament. With the rest of the New Testament, we can look back at this passage and understand what Jesus is saying here. That this spirit, it is the Holy Spirit who comes into his life and into our lives. And in verse 8, when Jesus talks about the wind, he's talking about the fact that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, doesn't usually show himself to us. We can't see him, but he moves powerfully wherever he wants to go. And he does whatever he wants to do. And among the things that he invisibly does in a person's life is he causes us to be born again. Now that is a Christian cliche. What I mean by that is that you hear born again all the time in the news and paper. What does it actually mean to be born again? Well, to understand that phrase, you've got to think about what it meant for you to be born the first time. So your first birth. Now, when the Bible talks about your first birth, it's not just talking about when you, when you came out of the birth canal. It's the whole process from conception to delivery. What did that change for you? Well, conception to delivery, you went from non-existence to existence. You received biological life. You became alive. Not only that, but your biological birth made you part of a family. From, from that moment, you became part of a, of a new family. Well, that's exactly what's going on when you are born again in your second birth. Now, you're not gaining biological life. You already have that. You're gaining spiritual life. And, and you needed that. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before you trusted in Jesus, before the Holy Spirit regenerated you, you were spiritually dead and unable to please God. But all that changed when the Holy Spirit came into your life, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Made us alive. You already had biological life. That's not what this is about. It's about spiritual life. Your spirit was dead. You were disconnected from God. And yet the Holy Spirit came into your life and regenerated you. Your your spirit came alive. And, And so you received spiritual life in your second birth. And you also became part of a new family. Just like your first birth made you part of a biological family, so your second birth made you part of a spiritual family. And so in John chapter 1, it tells us, Yet to all who have received him, that is Jesus, to those who have believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Because the Spirit regenerated you, you were born again. You were born into a new family, into the family of God. You are now children of God. This new family of God, the New Testament calls the church. You became part of the church. And by church, I don't mean Grace Bible Church or a particular local church. I mean church with a capital C. You became part of this new family of God called the church the moment you trusted in Jesus, the moment the Holy Spirit regenerated you. Now, in in most of the New Testament, this idea is communicated a, a little different through the concept of baptism. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. This is what happened in the moment you were regenerated. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. 
So the Holy Spirit came into your life. And where there was death, you were spiritually dead, he made you alive. And he joined you to a new family, the family of God that we call the church. He brought us into that, in that instant that we trusted in Jesus. So we call that ministry of the Holy Spirit regeneration. And that ministry of the Spirit, if you've trusted in Jesus, it's already done. Regeneration isn't like an ongoing thing. It's done instantly. The moment you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit makes you alive. So it's done in an instant, and it can never be undone. Just like your biological birth can't be undone. You can't unborn yourself. So you can't undo your second birth, your spiritual birth. So the moment you trust in Jesus, you're made alive, and you're made part of the family of God, and you can never lose any of that. That is done. So the Spirit is not regenerating you today. That's already complete complete the instant you trusted in Jesus. So what is he doing in you today? Well, these next two things are the ongoing ministries of the Holy Spirit in your life. So what exactly is he doing in you today? Well, number three, he is illuminating scripture. He is illuminating the word of God so that you can understand it. Back in John chapter 14, if you want to look back there, in verse 17, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth meaning that the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. He enables us to understand truth. How does he do that? Well, look at verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, here's the deal. Verse 26 is actually not for us. If you look at the surrounding context and study it, verse 26 is to the disciples. They were the ones who spent three years with Jesus, and so they needed to be reminded of what Jesus had taught them. And so the Holy Spirit comes into their lives and reminds them of what Jesus taught, and then what do they do with that? They wrote it down in this book. So the Holy Spirit fulfilled that verse by helping the writers of the New Testament remember the teachings of Jesus and record them so that we could all understand them. And so now God speaks to us through this book. But to understand this book, we have to have the Holy Spirit's help. We have to have the Spirit's help to understand this book because this book isn't just human words. It's it's God's own word. It is his own thoughts. We're told in 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of scripture, that's everything written in this book, came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is not just a book. The the Spirit came and filled these men's lives and caused them to write down everything that you have here. The result is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God. God breathes, literal word. Paul made up that word. It means God himself breathed out all the words of this book. Therefore, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. This is God's own words, God's own thoughts. And so to understand God's own thoughts, you need God's help. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The natural person, that's the person without the Holy Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, so the the unbeliever, can read this book. 
I mean, it's just it's here. It's in English. I can read this book. They can read this book and they can learn a lot about it. Actually, some of the greatest Greek and Hebrew scholars in the world are not Christians. They don't need the Holy Spirit to be able to understand it academically. However, the truth of this book always remains external to them. It does not enter their life and transform them and grow within them a love for Jesus because they don't let it do that. What Jesus is saying is, and what Paul is saying, is that if you want this book to enter your life and transform you and grow you into somebody who loves Jesus and loves the world, you must have the Holy Spirit for that. Only he can take the words in this book and use them to transform you. So the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives right now, opening our eyes and softening our hearts so that we can understand and apply this book. That's why every time you sit down to read the Bible, I encourage you to pray. Ask God's Spirit to open your eyes and soften your heart so that this won't remain just words on a page, but it'll enter your heart and transform you. You need God's Spirit to do that. He has to be the one to open your eyes and soften your hearts to this book. So the Spirit is at work in our lives, illuminating Scripture for us. And then finally, fourth thing that Jesus talks about, the Spirit is at work in our lives, empowering our obedience, enabling us to obey. Look again at John 14. So we're going to start one verse earlier than what we read. Let's actually pick it up in verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Jesus is not switching subjects there. What is the help that the Holy Spirit provides? He enables you to obey the commands of Jesus. Helper is is an odd word. It's It's a problem word really for us in English because when you hear helper, you tend to think of someone kind of weak. Like, I'm a parent, and when my kids were real little and would volunteer to help me in the garage, I would call them my little helpers. But like, you know, the work wasn't easier with them there, right? It took me longer. Their help was like anti-help. It made it more difficult. And so helper, we think of someone little and weak who's really not helping us. That's not at all what the Greek means. And it's not at all what's true of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is infinitely stronger than you or me. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He's equal to God the Father and God the Son in every way. He has infinite power, infinite energy, infinite wisdom. And so he's not our little helper. He is this powerful enabler of obedience. He is the one working in us to enable us to obey Jesus. We're told in in Philippians 2 verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And when Paul says it's God at work in you, we know he means God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is literally in you, working in you to enable both To will and to work, meaning he gives you both the ability to obey and the will, that is the desire to obey. So he's working sovereignly and powerfully in your life right now to give you both the desire and the power to follow Jesus. It's an incredible promise. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's an interesting list. Because every item on that list is something that God has commanded of you. You are expected by God to love. You are expected by God to have joy. 
You are expected by God to be a peaceful person, a patient person, a kind person. All of these things God commands you. The problem is they're too hard for us. If we define the words properly and think about what God means by love, what God means by patience, they're far too big for us. I cannot love sacrificially and unconditionally like God wants me to in my own strength. I'm too weak. I'm too sinful and broken for that. That's why Paul says this is actually the fruit of the Spirit. When these things are present in your life, it's not through your strength. It's through the Holy Spirit at work in you. See, the Spirit can do things you cannot do. The Spirit can love through you when you cannot And so I need to love my kids sacrificially and unconditionally. I cannot do that, but the Spirit can do it through me. I need to be patient and kind with my kids. I can't, but the Spirit can in me and through me. And so what Paul is saying is that the Spirit can enable you supernaturally to love as God wants you to love, to have joy as God wants you to have joy, to be patient as God wants you to be patient. And so when we think about superhero kind of deeds, sure, I'd love to fly and shoot lightning out of my fingertips, but none of that is going to fix the world. None of that is really going to make the world a better place. What does the world need? Well, the world needs heroic love. The world needs heroic kindness. The world needs heroic patience. And that is the heroic work that the Spirit wants to do in and through you. That is our superpower. We can live out the fruit of the Spirit in a way that no one else can. Because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. So that's the great news that Jesus is laying out for us. You can be the hero that this world needs if you allow the Spirit to live out these things in your life. But what is your part in this process? What do you need to do to access this infinite power that the Spirit will provide you to follow Jesus? Well, right before this passage that we see in Galatians 5, Paul told us in verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's talking to believers. He's telling us that we have a choice. Each and every day, we can choose to walk by the Spirit, and the result will be we won't give in to sin. Instead, we'll see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. What does it mean to to walk by the Spirit, that's, it's a metaphorical picture. Think walking by. Um, it, it pictures like a toddler trying to cross a street. Only way that toddler's going to get across the street is to hold up a hand to the parent. And the parent takes that hand and leads the child safely across the street. So it is with the Spirit in our lives. We have to depend upon the Spirit to lead us forward in obedience. So what do you need to do in this metaphor to lift your hand up to the Spirit? To say, Spirit, lead me. Well, this is where the spiritual disciplines come into the conversation. Spiritual disciplines are the practices that hopefully you are doing on a regular basis in your life. Things like reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, praying, worshiping, fasting, serving. All of these kind of deeds that you do, they're not magical things. They don't magically make you more pleasing to God or more mature. If I memorize scripture, it's, it's not this magic thing that makes me suddenly more like... No, all these deeds are, 
are ways that you submit your life to the Spirit. The spiritual disciplines are how you make your heart and mind available to the Holy Spirit to empower and transform you. So when you're reading the Bible or praying or worshiping or fasting or serving, you're doing it not because you think that reading the Bible or praying or worshiping or fasting or serving earns brownie points with God. It doesn't. There's there's no magic in any of those things. They don't earn brownie points with God. You do them because you believe that they offer your heart and your mind to the Holy Spirit so that he and his infinite power can work. And so the spiritual disciplines make us available to the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And that truth leads me to to one of the most common questions I've gotten over these last 15 years of being a pastor. I've been asked over and over again by people, what do I do when I no longer feel anything from spending time with God? Because a lot of our congregation is college students, and and you guys begin your walk with God, and, and you're in your early college years, and it's exciting, and you feel a lot. You feel passionate. You feel love for God. You feel excited. You feel enthusiasm. But then life gets harder And more time passes since you became a Christian. And at some point, you are going to experience periods of dryness. It's it's, in the Bible, it's quite little. It's when characters go off into the desert and they feel far from God. And they spend time in prayer and in scripture and don't feel a thing. And so you're going to have those moments where you feel distant from God. You don't feel like you're getting anything out of your time in his word, your time in prayer, your time in worship. And you're going to come and ask me, what do I do about this? And my answer for you is going to be, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Because your feelings are not the measure of value in those activities. It's not about the feelings. Feelings come and go. That's part of being a fallen, broken human being. You do these things not because of how they make you feel, but because you believe the truth of God's word that doing these things makes your heart and mind available to the Holy Spirit to work even if you can't feel him working. Remember, he's like the wind. You don't see him. He's often going to be working in times when you can't sense a thing. So you keep spending that time in the word, in prayer, in worship, in fasting, in service, in giving, in all of these spiritual disciplines because your feelings ultimately don't matter. It's your obedience that matters. To offer yourself to the Holy Spirit through these activities so that he can keep working in you whether you feel it or not. Conversely, if you choose no longer to practice those disciplines, I'm not going to read the Bible anymore because I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm not going to pray anymore because I don't feel anything afterwards. I'm not going to worship anymore because it's not exciting anymore. Well, then you're cutting yourself off from the spirit supernatural power in your life. And you're guaranteeing that you're going to experience sin and pain and heartache. That is always where that path leads. So we keep practicing the spiritual disciplines in our life because that's our part. That's how we're making ourselves available to the Spirit to work powerfully in us and transform us. So I would, I would challenge you as you look at your life, as you think about your life, so many of us think about our time with God in prayer and in the Bible and worship. and We think about it in terms of how it will make us feel. 
what we will get out of it. I'm going to challenge you to change how you think about your time with God. I want you to think about your time with God as how you are tapping in to the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, whether or not you can feel it. He's there. He's working in you. How do I know that? Because Jesus promised it and Jesus doesn't lie. He told you the Spirit's working in you even when you can't feel a thing. And so my challenge for you this week, as you, as you sit down to read God's word, as you sit down to pray, as you're worshiping, as, as you're fasting, whatever of these disciplines you're practicing this week, my challenge for you is to remind yourself, I'm not doing this because of how it makes me feel. I'm doing this because I really believe that the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, lives inside of me right now. And he will use this discipline in my life to transform me, whether I can see it or not. Now this morning we get to celebrate communion together. And so as the men go back to prepare communion, how does communion fit with what we've just studied? Well, what did it cost you to get the Holy Spirit in your life? Nothing. Holy Spirit is an absolutely free gift for you. You didn't pay a thing. Cost Jesus a lot though. For you to have the Holy Spirit, Jesus had to die in your place. There was no other way. And so we're going we're gonna to take communion and then we're going to sing a song here in a little bit. I just want you to get you thinking about the song that you're going to sing in a moment. Prepare you for worship. It's a song called Living Hope. And, and in this song, there's a stanza that says, Who could imagine so great a mercy... What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. I love that that line, to wear my sin and bear my shame. I mean, I say I love it. I don't love that this is what it cost him. I, I hate that when Jesus was on the cross, this is what he was wearing. They took his clothes off him. They crucified him naked, but he was wearing something. He was wearing our shame. He was wearing our sin upon himself. And, and that's the price that he paid so that we can have the Holy Spirit for free. God doesn't charge you anything. All you have to say is, yes, God, I want that gift. I want the Spirit in my life to make me alive. I want the Spirit to come and give me eternal life and regenerate me. All you have to do is say yes to the gift. Yes, I believe I want that. Jesus had to pay the price. And so in communion, what, what we're celebrating is the cost that Jesus paid for us. It's not just a little bit of grape juice and a little wafer or cracker. It is a chance for us to remember that all of these wonderful things we celebrate on a Sunday morning that came into our lives for free, it cost him greatly. Our sin and our shame he wore as his only clothing on the cross so that we could be forgiven and have his spirit for free. And so, men, as you come forward, I want to invite you to take this time as the elements are passed just to give thanks to Jesus for taking your shame and your sin so that you could have his spirit for free. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread after supper, saying, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way after supper he took the cup 
saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we celebrate the new covenant that your blood purchased. We praise you and we thank you that we live in that new covenant today, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We praise you, Father, that you have given us the gift of the Spirit so that we can follow your Son, Jesus. We praise you, Spirit, that you are patient with us, that you are kind, that you are always at work even when we can't feel you or see you. We praise you and thank you, God, that you love us, that you have been faithful to us, and that you will continue to be faithful with us. We thank you that you are with us wherever we go. We pray that we would walk in that truth and that knowledge, no matter how we feel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work through your spirit in our lives so that we would follow you and honor you and that we would help others to see you. We praise you and thank you, Jesus, that you bore our sin and shame on the cross so that we could have the gift of your spirit for free. You are so good to us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. If you'll stand, let's sing together.